0: When we hear about Singapore, we can relate to an important and prosperous economic power. In a matter of few years, the country has succeeded in the difficult task of transforming a nation on the brink of chaos into a democratic state whose people benefit from one of the best social systems in the world. The rate of crime and delinquency are close to zero, and there are no social or economic problems to speak of. A haven of peace, you might say. Before becoming the ideal state, which we now quote as an example for the rest of the world, Singapore had its share of dark and difficult times. It is in one such period, in the early 80s, that the terrible crimes of the Topeo district were committed, ending with the kidnapping, torture and murder of two children in utterly horrific and sordid conditions. These crimes still haunt the people of Singapore to this day, almost 40 years later. With this sinister case news of which only reached the rest of the world a few years later. We dive straight into a dark and cruel universe dominated by paganism, human sacrifice, and black magic. What were these ritualistic crimes? Who committed them? Who drove them to murder? Join me in finding the answers as we take a look at this new case. A model country, a highly developed nation, multicultural, and a powerful economic hub on the international stage. Singapore has in a short period of time gone from being an ex-British colony on the brink of chaos to a booming example of socio-economic success. It has earned admiration and respect from all over the world, but only a few have taken interest in its history, which remains distant to most around the world. From the beginning of the 20th century, the city-state has seen an important wave of immigration from its neighboring countries and islands. People from Malaysia, China, Indonesia, the Philippines, and Laos come to the archipelago en masse fleeing civil wars, dictatorial regimes, famines, and poverty. Each of these migrants brought in their own culture and spiritual traditions. Among them were Buddhists, Hindus, Muslims, Brahmins, who believed that the jungle surrounding Singapore was full of demons and supernatural forces, capable of changing an individual's fate, for better or worse. Following in China's footsteps, the new Singaporean government implemented an urban planning project with the aim of welcoming maximum number of people in a limited area while prioritizing comfort and public health. Therefore, to undertake higher studies and find a good job, you have to live in the metropole. Rural zones gradually empty as the cities fill up. The Muslims, Buddhists, and Hindus lived in perfect harmony. Temples and mosques were built side by side. Pagan beliefs which were mainstream not long before, were abandoned for a lifestyle and way of thinking more in the lines with a country in the process of modernization. In the early 70s, Singapore had around 2,413,945 inhabitants, of whom over half were Chinese. And yet a few kilometers away from the urban areas, the jungle remained a fertile ground for pagan practices. These forests, dense with trees and sparsely populated, were the perfect site for sorcerers and shamans of all kinds, the final guardians of a time gone by, known as tankies and bohoms in local dialects. the sorcerers, healers, mediums, and prophets were the last to keep these traditions going. During the socio-economic renaissance, That was shaking up social life and thought the Singaporean government was very careful to guarantee the safety of its citizens. Strict laws aiming to reduce the crime rate were put in place, underpinned by very severe punishments. The results were immediate. There was a vertical drop in crime and other acts of delinquency. People could let their children out to play at any time of the day or night without surveillance. The country had become so safe and risk-free that even the prisons were closed down, as there were very few prisoners. The Clemente and Topeo districts were home to more than half the population. So far, individualism, the American way of life, the time is money attitude, and stress were slowly defeating tribal and familial tradition. In modern housing, any sense of community in the neighborhood was thrown out of the window. Ferocious capitalism had taken over. A home that had been passed down through three generations of a family was no longer theirs, and for every newlywed couple, finding a place in this urban hive was a struggle. Outside the business district and its shiny skyscrapers, the vast majority of citizens were packed together in identical, minimalist blocks of flat, That troop under the heavy, lush greenery even in the center of the town. Here, there is no poor or rich, but an emerging middle class that represented the made-in-Singapore model of success based on equality of chances and for bettering the quality of life. In Lorong, a peaceful area of Taupeo, on the seventh floor, one of these famous social flats was home to a man named Adrian Lim, a collections officer for the national radio station and a father. A man who kept to himself and was committed to his work. Of whom his superiors only had good things to say. His two children went to school. His wife looked after the house and the family had a respectable and comfortable life. But Adrian Lim seemed to be missing something. His life was becoming too orderly for him. Too monotonous. The perfect social model of his country almost bored him. It's like we're in a less dense version of the USSR. He would joke. He often sat on the balcony at night. Nothing ever happened in the neighborhood. Not a sound of a siren, not a shadow of a police officer, no theft, no crime, not even the sound of neighbors arguing. Nothing. Lim wanted a new life. He had drawn out a plan and he intended to do just that. But before we say more, let's get to know this character better. Adrian Lim was born on 6th January, 1942, in a rural area, the eldest of a humble family. He wasn't the brightest student. But he had a lot of imagination and wanted to leave school and start to work to earn his own money. Since his dad refused to give him any, he was an unruly teenager. Bad-tempered, hot-headed and was often looking for fights. By age 16, Lim had already stopped his studies and started doing various small jobs to help his family. Blinkered but hardworking, he was hired by Singapore's radio station Rediffusion Singapore in 1962 at only 20 years old. His work consisted of installing and repairing cables. After three years of good and dedicated service, he was promoted to collections officer, a role usually given to graduates. In 1967, Lim married his long-term girlfriend, embracing her faith and becoming Catholic. The couple had two children. The family lived in social housing until the 1970s, when Lim got a three-bedroom flat on the seventh floor of Block 12. In one of the buildings in the tauapeo Lorong district, the neighborhood was quiet and straightforward, home to many middle-class families like Lim's. But his real calling, to which he devoted himself from 1973 onwards, after a revelation, was spiritualism. This hobby quickly became a sort of a part-time job for Adrian Lim, and to see his clients in privacy, away from prying eyes, he rented a small room in the block of flats next to his own Business was slow to begin with, but thanks to the word of mouth, he built a reputation. In spite of the modernization of the country, superstition and the powers of deities still constituted the foundation of Singaporean society. Adrian Lim refused to self-promote and relied instead on his clients to bring him others. The majority of his clients were women, most of whom who worked night jobs, escort girls, go-go dancers and prostitutes. Most were either Filipino or Thai. But personal and financial problems. All they wanted was to better their social situation, to find rich husbands who would look after them until the end of days and to be able to stop working at bars and sleeping with men in exchange for money. Lim said he could change their destiny on a condition that they pay him regularly for his services. He promised to put an end to their misfortunes. Thanks to his sacred rituals, they'll soon have no trouble finding the mega-rich boyfriend of their dreams. He made them sip various concoctions and portions and gave amulets to ward off the evil eye. The shaman assured them that they would become the most beautiful and sought-after brides, and that good fortune would now be on their side. Naive and desperate, this was exactly what the girls wanted to believe, and each season they paid him as much as he asked. But using the same antidotes and magic rituals always makes his loyal clients suspicious. So Lim innovated using whatever he could find. On one of his walks through a seedy neighborhood on the other side of the river, he came across a bama, a Malaysian shaman, who taught him the inner workings of the job and initiated him into different rituals of witchcraft and black magic. The former collections officer learned much from his mentor and often visited him for advice. So with a few tricks up his sleeve, Lim could create the right effects to heal his clients, earn their admiration, and leave them awestruck. To persuade his clients that someone envies them or means them harm, he carried out a ritual he called the needle in the egg trick, where he pierces through the shell of a raw egg with a white hot needle, then sealed it up with a plaster so the client doesn't notice it's being tampered with. The magic egg is then passed several times over her head before being broken in front of her. On seeing the black spots, the client is immediately convinced that she is being targeted by an enemy or rival, and that this was proof of their evil intentions. Adrian Lim often called on the Hindu goddess Kali and the Thai deity Fragan, who are both closely linked with femininity and fertility. On more than one occasion, Lim had been attracted to a client, going so far as to fantasize about her, imagining her in suggestive and pornographic positions, sometimes tied up like a slave. And the younger they were, the more attracted to them he was. Unable to control his urges, sex obsession, Adrian Lim started turning to other methods to get what he wanted. He began imposing sexual rituals on his clients as a part of the healing process. Practice about physical touch rather than spiritual. In his consultation room, a curious place with tacky decor and an overpowering smell of incense, ayurvedic massages and kama sutra positions now center stage. He took part in these himself always in his role as a healer, wearing talismans and pendants representing various goddesses around his neck and even around his genitals. Lim practiced Ayurvedic massages inspired by ancient Indian medicine on his clients, insisting that women to be completely naked. The ritual generally concluded with consensual sexual intercourse, supposed to liberate the bad spirits following them, convinced that he had superpowers. His clients obeyed his will without hesitation, unable to distinguish moral from immoral. But Adrian Lim, a shrewd businessman, did not stop there. His loyal clientele was also made up of older men and women. For these, he used more or less the same rituals, without the pornographic parts. Crafty and greedy, he had no qualms about taking large sums of money from them in exchange for promises of health, good fortune, and longevity. On top of this, Adrian Lim used other extreme and outdated methods, such as electroshock therapy. According to him, the only way to soothe recurrent migraines, headaches, memory loss, and even diabetes and cancer. The reputation of the healer of Toyopeo quickly spread around nightclubs and brothels, in which stories passed from mouth to mouth of his wondrous talents as a medium, sorcerer, and a healer for any illness. A barmaid named Catherine Tan Mo Chu first heard of him from a friend who was always singing his praise. Tan Mochu, whose life was far from rosy, decided to go meet this fascinating, mysterious man in hopes of finding a solution to her problems. She was unhappy. She had a lot of family problems. She had been at war with her parents for many years now, often angry, knowing neither love nor kindness. Tan felt rejected and even considered suicide. And then one evening she went to Taupeo and knocked on the door of flat number 12. When she met Adrian Lim, it was love at first sight. Tan was completely swept off her feet, conquered by this man, who although not particularly handsome, easily caught her under his spell. They fall for one another and soon become lovers. In the year 1975, Adrian Lim, still working at the radio station, he was still married to his wife, he spent each night at the family home, all the while leading his second parallel life in secret. He and Catherine tan Mao Chu moved in together that same year, into a small flat two blocks away from his consultation room. But stories of infidelity never remained a secret for long, and Mrs. Lim soon found out that her husband was being unfaithful. She left him immediately with their two children and opened an amicable divorce procedure. They legally split in June 1977 and Adrian married Tan in a little Catholic chapel, in the presence of two witnesses, without the young woman's family. Now free to live their relationship openly, the two newlyweds never left each other's side. Tan cared for her husband and made him his favorite desserts. Lim, freed from his family, left his regular job to devote himself fully to his job as a shaman. Dan quickly fell under his absolute control. He had her under his thumb. In 1978, the business got better each day. Adrian was making twice his old salary just by giving people his spiel. To think that he'd spent years crouched over an office desk repairing radio cables when his real calling was elsewhere. On one occasion, one of his loyal clients gave him a whopping sum of $7,000 for having exercised and healed his mother for good. The limb couple's business carried on, completely outside the law and unnoticed by it, and the pair were both happy pocketing the enormous sums from their loyal clients and at the end of each month. But as we know, gains badly won, profit none. And after pocketing the money, it never took long for the husband and wife to squander it. Adrian in casinos and at Russian Relay and tan on designer clothes and French beauty products, imported at top dollar. Often short of cash, they raked up debts with their creditors. The relationship so idyllic and passionate to begin with quietened down over time. But Lim still had complete control over Tan. He subjugated and manipulated her and soon began assaulting and beating her while leading all laws against domestic violence. Tan never complained, never turned him in for fear of what he would do. Lim's appetite for money also grew and to satisfy it, he forced his young wife into prostitution and seized her earnings. He made her have sex with very young boys in order to preserve her eternal beauty. As with his other demands, Tan quietly obliged. Tan was also tasked with the marketing campaign for her husband, going so far to recruit potential clients among her friends and from nightclubs and brothels of the red-light district of the capital, Singapore city, which was frequented by migrants who had just arrived from the Philippines and Laos. One such occasion, on Lim's order, Tan even offered him her younger sister, in order to heal her of a suspected evil eye that had been following her around. To reward her for her good and loyal services, Lim raised Catherine Tan to a status of holy wife, a title akin to that of a goddess. Their peculiar and toxic relationship continued in this way until a third character entered their universe. In 1979, Mrs. Ka Hong and her daughter, Lai Ho, came to consult Adrian Lim to get amulets of protection for her eldest daughter for her good fortune and a good husband. The two women quickly fell under his spell with the famous egg and needle trick, which had become a kind of trademark of the healer. They were so impressed with what they saw that they decided to go a second time, this time with the younger sister, Ho Hong. She suffered from depression. Adrian Lim called on his supernatural powers to heal her. This fragile young woman, only 24, had everything Adrian Lim needed to flatter his ego. He quickly detected profound disconnect. He wasn't wrong. Ho Kan Hung came from a dysfunctional family and had a very difficult childhood. Born in 1955, she lost her father very young and was taken in by her paternal grandmother who raised her like her own daughter. Ho was very attached to her. When she died, Ho was forced to return to live with her mother. She was made to feel unwelcome, unwanted, and a nuisance. In reality, her mother only had eyes for her oldest daughter, Leho. Ho. suffered a lot from this favoritism and became a rebellious and uncontrollable teenager. Her mother threatened to kick her out. To walk away from them all, the young girl married Benson Lo Nyaghoa, a wandering salesman from Vietnam, and moved into a small council property with him. The couple's financial situation was poor. Being a traveler, Benson's income wasn't enough. But he loved his young wife and did all he could to make her happy. Despite this, Ho suffered from recurrent depressive episodes that affected her daily life and prevented her from conceiving. She made peace with her mother, even if deep down she'd never truly forgiven her. Under her influence, Ho Kang Hong started to visit flat number 12 of Toa Peo more often, where Adrian Lim claimed he could find a solution for all her problems. The shaman persuaded her to move in with him permanently. He did not hold back from mercilessly manipulating her, persuading her that she was being chased by demonic forces. He played the needle and egg trick on her and pulled her aside to talk with her alone. You see the black spots in the egg yolk? That's your family. They don't love you. Your mother means you harm. She'd happily kill you if she could. She gives you off bad vibrations. I felt them the second she walked in. Stay with me. Me and Tan will take good care of you. You will have everything you need, even money, As much as you want. But only if you stay with me. I love you and I want you to be my wife. My holy wife. Ho Kang Hong was hesitant. What about Benson Lo? She was already married. She can't leave her husband. She can't get a divorce. But Lim's power of persuasion was strong. He lied and demonized her husband. What can you expect a man who sells durians? He's just a bumpkin. A miserable illiterate bumpkin from the jungle. You want to know what he does with all his money? All the money he keeps from you? Saying people these days prefer American ice cream to durian fruits? He looks after his mistress. Oh yes, he has a mistress. Several even. Do you really want to catch syphilis or some other filthy STI? Do you really want to stay with him? Ho shook her head. She couldn't argue. She was almost convinced. It was true. At the end of the day, what could she expect from a husband who lived on a daily basis? Who hardly bought home a decent salary? who was always late on rent and who, on top of all this, was being unfaithful. Lim smiled reassuringly, gave her a talisman to hide under her innerwear, then told her to go home and act if nothing was wrong. He ordered her to come back for a second session. Ho was subjected to the sexual ritual that Adrian Lim imposed on most young women who come to him for help. He ordered her to take off her clothes and come into the bedroom. Throughout the procedure, Lim told Ho that he was now reincarnated as the goddess Kali. He gave her sexual massages and made her reciprocate. After several of these sessions in close succession, Ho was elevated to the status of holy wife in another sexual ceremony. She left her husband, cut ties with her family, and joined Lim and Tan in flat number 12. Some of the rituals became livelier and dramatic. Adrian Lim with his experience in electric cables, set up a whole system with corresponding music to make it seem like there are evil spirits haunting the client. That's what he did most nights now. The neighbors were kept up late into the night by the cries of clients who had gone into a trance. limbs cries and the blaring music. He ignored their complaints and warnings. And they finally called the police. But that was not enough to calm the cacophony. Things continued like this until the start of 1980s. Tan loved cosmetics and devoted much time to her personal hygiene. She always picked up beauty catalogs from the letterbox when she went down to get the post. One morning, she came across a young woman dressed in pink, representing a famous cosmetic brand. There is was a wash instant connection between the two women. The saleswoman introduced herself as Lucy Love Huang, and she did door-to-door sales. She told Tan how great the brand she represented was and promised to come back next time with product samples her to try on before she buys. She came again with the pink Samsonite at her side and rang the door at flat number 12. Adrian Lim opened the door. His wife had gone out to do some shopping, but he offered to make himself useful. Lucy was invited in for a chat. Adrian Lim warned the young woman that she was being followed by a demonic force that was said to get in the way of any marriage proposal. The young woman sighed. He was right. Her third boyfriend had just left her and there was relentless pressure from her family to find a husband. She had no luck. But she was pretty, a fact that didn't go unnoticed by Adrian Lim, who was already forming a devilish plan in his mind. Come back to see me tomorrow. I'll do everything I can help you. When she came back, she found Tan and Ho there too. Tan introduced Ho as her little sister. He told the women beforehand what he intended to do with the cosmetic saleswoman. Lucy was given a glass of milk, spiked with a sedative, and in a matter of minutes, she fell unconscious. Adrian Lim took her into the bedroom and raped her. He repeated this on every visit of hers, until Lucy decided to stop coming. Angered by this turn of events, he threatened and followed her in the street. The young woman reported him to the police for rape. Arrested and interrogated, Lim pleaded innocence, saying that Lucy had invented this whole story to avoid paying him back some money he had lent her. Due to lack of supporting evidence, he was let out under caution and was closely watched by the police. He continued his usual practice the same day. But with a bitter taste in his mouth, this was the first time that his life that a woman had dared to speak out against him. He wasn't used to it. As for Lucy, she refused to withdraw her accusation and ordered that the rapist's home be searched. Lim and his wives were called in again and interrogated much more intensely than the first time. All three denied the accusation lying and giving contradictory alibis. Adrian Lim, furious at having been attacked this way, decided to get revenge in the most atrocious way. To save his business, which was under threat thanks to Lucy Lau's case, and to distract the police away from him, he decided to kill some children to busy them with another case. But these murders won't be spontaneous. Oh no, to avoid all suspicion, they'll need to be properly organized. He told Tan of his plan that evening. The goddess Kali will take a child with their mother's milk still in between their teeth. It was early January 1981. The murder was scheduled to take place over the next few days. Tan and Ho were to discreetly find potential victims. To do this, they took daily walks in the playgrounds around the neighborhood and keenly watched throughout their dark glasses, the to-and-fro movements of children and their moms, observing which ones were accompanied and which were left alone, riding around on their little bikes. On 24 January, Agnes Ng Siu Hak, a nine-year-old girl, disappeared behind the Risen Christ Church a few kilometers from Taipei Olurang. Ho approached her first and asked if she wanted ice cream. The young girl innocently followed her to the flat. Pauline, Agnes' older sister, was the last to have seen her alive. Her disappearance was alerted to the authorities that day. On the night of 25th of January, a young carpenter returned from a late screening at the cinema and spotted a brown PVC bag that had been left in front of the lift of his building. He looked around him. Someone must have left it here. So, he waited a moment, hoping for the bag's owner to return, but they did not. So, the young man who was curious decided to open the zip. He nearly had a heart attack. The bloody head of a child suddenly appeared in front of him, like the head of a doll without its body. The man trembled with all his being. Inside the bag, he saw the body of young Agnes, curled up in fetal position. She was dead. He called the police immediately. In the autopsy, the jurors reported cigarette burn marks on the child's body. There were also signs of strangulation and traces of sperm around her genitals and rectum. Investigations immediately began but were hindered soon by lack of evidence. The police interrogated no less than 250 people living in the area where Agnes's body was found. But after several days, all suspects were released. A week after the discovery of the body, the mother of the victim received an anonymous phone call, a woman's voice threatening the same fate for other daughters. The voice added that their bodies will be sliced up and thrown to stray dogs. While Toapeo was still shaken and yet to digest this unprecedented tragedy, on 6 February 1981, no less than a fortnight later, a second victim fell prey to the monstrous trio. Chinese New Year celebrations were in full swing in Singapore. The country was alive with festivities, fireworks, traditional dances, food and drink stands, multicoloured costumes, visits and exchanges between families and friends. Ghazale Marzuki Ten years old was invited to his grandmother's house to celebrate the festival. While his aunts prepared the evening meal, he went down with his cousins to play in the little park opposite their building, in Clementi, a residential area west of the capital, Singapore City. While his cousins left to get ice creams, the child was alone for a while, but long enough to be approached by a woman he didn't know. Hey buddy, are you playing over here? Yeah, we're building a temple. Ah, a temple, that's great. But you know, I'm going to need you to give me a hand. I'll just take a minute and we'll be back in no time. No need to let your cousins know or tell your mom, all right? The child nodded and got into a taxi, hand in hand. When his cousins came back, cones in hand, Ghazali was nowhere to be seen. Assuming he started a game of hide-and-seek, they went around looking for him in the playground, the toilets, and behind trees. They couldn't find him. They started to panic. Something was wrong. They didn't want to inform their parents out of fear of being told off or punished and stayed wherever they were and waited for him to come back, hoping to see him jump at any moment. But it was already dark and their grandmother was already calling them upstairs for dinner from the balcony. Ghazali won't be coming home tonight. On the other side of the town, Ho in a taxi with Ghazali on her lap asked the driver to drop them off in front of a certain building. The child was quickly led inside where Tan drugged him with a sedative he sipped into his soda. But it wasn't enough to knock him out completely. Young Ghazali quickly regained his consciousness, suddenly putting Adrian Lim, Tan and Ho in predicament. These three criminals panicked and finally decided to kill him immediately. First, Lim raped and strangled him. Then, the two women bled and drowned him in a bath. Tan and Ho smeared the little boy's blood on their faces and on pictures of the goddesses. Meanwhile, Ghazali's family looked everywhere for him, in every corner of the district, asking passerby and neighbors but to no avail. They looked in temples and mosques. The boy's family were Muslims and known by almost everyone there. That evening, heavy-hearted, having failed to find their child, the parents returned home defeated. They alerted the police who immediately opened a missing child case, a case that did not last long. Since the following day, Ghazali Marzuki's body was found in the same place as Agnes's, which was block 12, a few meters from the murderer's flat. Following an autopsy, the jurors concluded the cause of death was suffocation by drowning. The body also showed traces of strangling, cigarette burns in the back and a needle mark in the top of his left arm from the syringe containing the sedative. The detectives found and followed a blood trail that led him to Lim's flat. On the seventh floor, Detective Menon Singh, found himself face to face with Adrian Lim, who, dressed in shirt and trousers, looked as though he was about a runaway. The police officer asked to search the flat. Keeping calm, Kim let them in. They started searching from top to bottom and came across a phone book with a slip of paper on which were written the names and surnames of the two young victims. Tan and Ho were also in the flat. Lim flatly denied any involvement in the murders when the police officers questioned him, while his two holy wives had nothing to hide. Yes, they killed the two children because Lim asked them to. Why? He wanted to take revenge on the police for the Lucy Love case a year earlier. The three murderers were immediately arrested and driven to the police station, where the interrogation began. In the flat, the detectives find other clues. Clothes that belong to young Angie, statues of gods of Indian mythology, including the Kali, the black goddess who is represented in figurines, trinkets, painting, and large statues all over the flat. They also find several dildos, pornographic magazines which are forbidden by the law, tubes of lubricant, whips, condoms, and anesthetics. The blood of the young boy was later found on pictures of the goddess Kali, as well as in a receptacle in the fridge. Tan and Ho intended to keep it and use it to make face masks and love portions for clients. In the interrogation, Tan recounted the crimes in all her gruesome details. Well, the police officers gathered in that, on 24 January 1981, Ho had been sent by Lim to kidnap young Agnes. The young girl had been brought back to the flat, fed by the two women, then drugged with a Dalmadorm tablet. Then Adrian Lim raped and strangled her. Tan added that the three of them had drunk the victim's blood before putting the body in a bag that they left in front of the lift of a building where it had been found a few hours later by a neighbor. In his statement, Lim claimed that he killed the two children as a sacrifice for the good spirits in exchange for protection from them. In fact, he had wanted to kill six children, but his plans had been interrupted. Amidst this, another murder case was revealed by Ho. Two years earlier, her first husband came to see her, looking for an explanation why she left so suddenly. Lim electrocuted him, Ho assisted in the operation, and the emotional shock triggered depressive episodes and hallucinations in the following days. Benson Lowe's body was never found. Adrian Lim admitted to having poured acid over it. To explain his crime, he said it was motivated by jealousy. He was in love with Ho and wanted her for himself. Killing her ex-husband is the only way to get rid of him for good. The news of the evil trio arrest immediately spread through the city-state of Singapore. People were in shock and horrified by their cruelty. The case was passed to the High Court of Singapore and over 100 witnesses spoke. The three defendants were put in front of a jury of psychological and psychiatric experts examined for mental illness, put forward as an extenuating circumstance, which was rejected. Adrian Lim and his two wives knew perfectly well what they were doing and knew right from wrong. Laura Glenn Knight presented at the inquest said, Adrian Lim was perfectly lucid. He knew what he was doing. He was determined in the making of his plan. Tan, who agreed everything, was doing whereas Ho was more a follower manipulated by the other two. The trial of the three murderers lasts for 41 days, one of the longest trials in Singapore's history. The verdict was pronounced on 25 May, 1983, outside in the front court of justice. An angry crowd gathered from early that morning to await the sentence. At the mention of capital punishment, there was the explosion of joy and tears. The three were sentenced to the gallows. Lim accepted the ruling and did not react on hearing the verdict. Tan and Ho, on the other hand, stood up in their stalls shouting. They decided to appeal, claiming to suffer from mental illness. But their requests were rejected by the magistrate. Their lawyers then turned to the judicial committee of the Privy Council to ask for them to be pardoned by the president of Singapore, which he later refused. From then on, in the corridors of Changi Prison, the two women spent their last days of custody in prayer and contemplation. They fasted and barely slept at night. Ho said she was often visited by the spirit of her ex-husband, Benson. A non-sister, Gerard Fernandez, visited them on most days to hear their confessions and their final wishes. A week before his execution, Adrian Lim started to pray frantically and even asked for a chaplain to confess his sins before his death. The prison board granted him his last wish. On 25 November 1988, at 6 a.m., the three criminals were hanged in Changi Prison. And so ends this horrifying case of murder one that had for many years been heard of only in Singapore. Few people knew of this case, and fewer have heard about it outside the country. Who knows why? Shame, reticence, perhaps, on the part of the Singaporean government who believed to have succeeded in creating the perfect society where there were no criminals or psychopaths roaming free. Adrian Lim himself said, Anyone who thinks Singapore is boring and sterilized is blind to our criminals. Criminals who send shiver down your spine, the worst of all crooks, the very incarceration of evil. Following the execution of the three murderers, the families of the two victims received damages from the state. In 2016, Delilah Marzuki, mother of young Gazeli, gave an interview to the Straits Times where she spoke of all the misery she had gone through, all the suffering she had endured since the loss of her boy. Even all these years later, she had never understood what made her son follow Ho into the dreadful lair, when she had always told him to beware of strangers. Ghazali's mother described him as a kind and well-behaved boy. Other tragedies that took place around the time of the Teo Peo crimes shook Singapore for a number of years, before fading away from memory. Effective policing, a drastic change in mindset and traditions, and stronger security measures have managed to dissuade other potential wrongdoers. We're at the end of our show for today. So feel free to listen to the other shows on the podcast and take 5 seconds to leave us a 5-star rating on iTunes. It's really important to us. You can also subscribe to the next episodes and follow us on Facebook to suggest new ones. Thank you and see you soon.